Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 20 through 26. We uh, conclude this morning our study on the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. And as you turn there, let me invite you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. O Lord our God, we thank You that we have won the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, who lives to make intercession for us. And we pray now that as we come to Your Word, that His intercession might be effectual in our hearts. That as we hear Your Word read and preached, that we might be changed more into His image, more into His glory. We ask and pray these things in His name the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord now from John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love me, or, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. In 2017, some six years ago now, I was in a bit of trouble. I was pastoring a Pentecostal church and I was a Calvinist and I wanted to leave and pursue ministry in the PCA, but I didn't know where to go, and I didn't know how I would feed my family while doing so. And uh, to make matters more challenging, the, the, pastor, or the church that I pastored was having ongoing feudal disputes like the Hatfields and McCoys for about 30 years. And I was drawn into the middle of all this conflict, including church discipline and a divorce in the church. And it was, it was hard. And it really caused me a lot of affliction and hardship. And I remember uh, being so stressed out at times, uh, having difficulty sleeping at night and getting up and 
pacing around the floor to pray and uh, even having some stomach pains. It, w- it was so stressful. It was so difficult. And all I really knew how to do, uh, all I really knew to do was to pray. But the Lord was at work. And I'll never forget the day when my phone rang and it was an old pastor friend and former classmate from seminary, Pastor Larry Perry, a veteran seasoned pastor, a wonderful man, loves the Lord and uh, loves serving God's people. And my phone rang and it was Pastor Larry and of course I answered it and I'll never forget hearing his voice on the other, on the other line, David! How are you? I wanted to say, horrible, Pastor Larry. He said, you know, David, I called you because every day for the last few days that I have gone to pray, you have been on my mind and on my heart. And I've had a burden to pray for you. And so I just want to know what's been going on with you that I've had this burden and so I just called to see how you were doing. And my reply to him was, who told you what's happening right now? No one had told him. The Lord had impressed upon his heart to pray for me. Who's prayed for you? in your life. Maybe you've had Christian parents, a mother and a father who loved you and were praying for you through difficulties in your life. Maybe it was a spouse who prayed for you while you were not walking with the Lord and that spouse prayed you into the church. Maybe it was a dear friend through a difficulty in your life, a hardship, a sickness, who called and checked on you regularly and prayed for you. Maybe it was an elder in the church who got in a pulpit similar to this And when that elder prayed, prayed heaven down to earth, and your name was brought before the throne of grace. Where would we be without the prayers of God's people? I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for the prayers of God's people. The Lord just being so kind to impress upon the hearts and the minds of so many different people throughout my life who've just prayed for me. And I want you to see in this passage this morning that Jesus is praying for you. If you're in Christ this morning, If you look to faith in Him, if you have put your faith and trust in Him, I want you to see this morning that Jesus is praying for you. He was on 
You were on His mind in this passage. He mentioned you here in this passage. And He prayed for you in this passage. We've looked at this chapter. It's aptly called the High Priestly Prayer. In the first section, Jesus prayed for His glorification. In the second section, Jesus prayed for His disciples. And in the last section here, He prays for His church. That's all of us who are here this morning. Jesus prayed for us in this passage. I want us to look at that together. I'll ask you this question, what is it that Jesus prays for when He prays for His church? And we could turn to a lot of different passages of Scripture that speak to the prayers of Christ and His work for us as our high priest. This morning, I want you to see two things specifically that Jesus prayed for when He prayed for His church. First, we will see that Jesus is praying for your unity in the church. Jesus is praying for your unity in the church. And secondly, we will see that Jesus is praying for you to see His glory. Jesus is praying for you to see His glory. So let's look at these two together as we examine this marvelous verse of Scripture. I want you to see first, Jesus is praying for your unity in the church. Who's Jesus praying for? Look at verse 20. He not only prays for the disciples, but He prays for all those who will have faith in Him through their word. Here are the disciples. They will no doubt scatter like sheep when their shepherd is struck. They will abandon Jesus. Peter will deny Jesus. And yet... Jesus is so confident in these men that they are going to take this gospel and they are going to spread this gospel and there will be those who believe in Jesus no longer through the word of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus, but they will come to faith, how? Through the testimony of these disciples. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus pauses here to take a moment and to pray for His church. He is praying for those who will believe in Jesus through the testimony, through the word of the disciples. And what does He pray for? He prays in verse 21 for the church's unity. Do you see that? What does He pray for? Look at your Bibles that they will be what? that they may be one. There's the petition. Jesus is praying that all those who put their faith in Christ after His death and resurrection and ascension and after the church is established, Jesus prays that the church will be unified, that they will be one together. How so? Just as Father just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So there is the ideal of unity. Jesus is praying that just as He and the Father are one in in mission, in purpose, in thinking, that the church will be one together 
in love, in unity, in mission, in purpose, and in thinking. So just as Jesus would, would say and tell his disciples that he does nothing but what the Father shows him, all the words that he says, it's the Father's words. And all the work that he does, it is the Father's work. That's the unity that Jesus enjoys with his Father. And so Jesus is praying that the church will be like that. That the church will be united together in its work, in its mission. And this is not, as D.A. Carson says, boiling down our beliefs and theology to the lowest common denominator. That's not what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is praying that the church will be mission-minded and unified in its mission. That we will do this work that Christ has given us, that we'll do this together. And that we'll be unified together. And not only... Will there be unity in the church? Jesus not only prays for the unity of the church, but he also prays for the unity of the church with who? Look at verse 21. That they also may be in what? In who? In us. So not only is Jesus praying for the unity of the church on the one hand, but Jesus is also praying for the unity of the church with God on the other hand. Now the New Testament will go to explain this in a lot of different ways. But Christ is our head. And we are only as unified together as we are unified in who? In Christ. So that the church will grow together in all things into maturity in Christ. So Jesus is praying here that not only will the church be unified together, but that the church will be unified to God. Well, what is the means that will accomplish this? Jesus mentions that here in verse, verse 22. The means that accomplishes this is Christ's glory. Look at verse 22. The glory is the means that accomplishes this. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So there's the means, Christ is saying. This is how that is accomplished. Christ displays his glory in the church so that the church can be unified. Thought about John chapter 1, verse 14, that Christ, that John says that we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That as they saw Jesus, they saw God's glory. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the means by which the church is unified to each other and is unified to God is by looking at the glory of Christ. He is the one, He is our focal point. He is the one that we concentrate on. He is the one we proclaim. He is the one that we preach. He is the one that we confess. He is the one that we serve. He is the one that we strive to be like. We look to the glory of Christ. 
And as the church together looks to Christ, the church becomes more unified. And that is the means by which the church receives unity. Well, what's the result of that? Jesus tells us the result. Look at verse 21 and look at verse 23. Verse 21 first, what's the result? The world may believe that you sent me. So one of the reasons why Christ wants the church to be unified is because the church's unity is a testimony to the world. The church displays God's glory. The church displays the love of Christ in the manner in which they love and serve one another. Additionally, Jesus says, not only so that the world may believe that you sent me, but also, look at verse 23, Jesus repeats it, so that the world may know that you sent me, and what? Love them even as you loved me. This is Jesus' desire, right? Not only that they will see an affirmation of the real, true work and devotion to God in the church, but through that, that it would be a witness that just as Jesus said in John 3.16, that God so loved the world. God so loved the world that He sent Jesus to display God's glory that those who are in the world might be called out of the world and brought to Christ. That's what Jesus said is saying will be the result. When the church is unified, that is what is accomplished. Some of you, uh, and if you don't, you should, you go to your annual physical. So if you haven't had your annual physical yet, this is a reminder, go and have that done. And you know when you're sitting there with your doctor, they always play this game, ask you a thousand different questions about yourself. Oh, how have you been in the last 10 years since you were in my office? Have you had any noticeable changes in your life? How has your diet been? Are you getting enough sleep? Have you had any significant weight change in your life? Have you noticed yourself feeling sluggish lately? Do you have any Symptoms, And you get asked all kinds of questions, and some of them are they're real personal sometimes, too, aren't they? But what the doctor is trying to get at would be any symptoms that you are exhibiting that might be an indication of another issue. So this morning, I'd like to give you your annual checkup with your unity in the church. I want to ask you some questions this morning about your unity with the church. And this, the results of this may not mean that you're not unified to the church. It just may be a symptom of some struggles with unity in the church. How about this? Do you have any unresolved conflict with any person in the church? Do you have regular, frequent, and consistent fellowship with other Christians in the church? 
Do you have a place to serve regularly in the church? And are you able to enjoy that service in the church with joy? Have you formalized your relationship to the church through church membership, including the taking of church vows? Do you regularly and often pursue means, the means of discipleship that the church utilizes? Are you regular and consistent in your gathering together corporately with the body of Christ to worship the Lord? I want you to examine your own heart here and see if you are in unity with the church. Now, you might be saying to me, well, listen, Pastor, hold on a minute. My relationship with God is, is a private matter. That is between me and God. And the church is a, here's a good one, the church is nothing more than a man-made institution. Have you heard that one before? Or how about this one? You know, I don't have to gather corporately with God's people. There's no command in the Bible that says that. I can worship God on my own at home in the way that I desire to worship God. Hey, who are you to suggest that I'm not in unity with the church if I'm not in consistent corporate worship with the church? I want to just pause for a minute there as you have all these objections in your mind to that. And I want you to think about the analogies used in the New Testament of the church. How is the church described? What analogies are used to describe the church in the New Testament? And I would, I would say to you and point out to you that they're all corporate in nature. The church is compared to a family. And that just as a family is a corporate unit together. It is also comprised of individual members. So when you became a Christian, you did not become a Christian separate and independent from every other Christian who has ever walked this earth. You were made part of a family of God. Think about the analogy used of the church as a body. The body has different members, hand, a foot, A heart, a liver, bones, and we are all members of the body of Christ. Together, we make up the unit of the body, and individually, we are members. Different parts of the body of Christ. And Christ is the head. The church is described as a flock of sheep. We saw that in the Gospel of John, didn't we? The church is described as a flock. Singly, you know, together it is one group comprised of individual sheep. Church is described as a building with different building materials that comprise 
one building with the Lord Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. What's your point, Pastor? My point is this. There are no lone wolf Christians. That is an anomaly. There is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. When you are saved, you are saved into a church family. And Jesus is praying for you. And He is praying that you would be unified to your church family. That's His desire. What's Jesus pray for when He prays for the church? He prays for your unity in the church. And secondly, He prays for you to see His eternal glory. Let's look at Jesus' second petition. It's there in verse 24. Notice what Jesus says. His desire is that they also, those whom are given to Jesus, that they would be where? May be with me where I am to see my glory. Well, Jesus is speaking here what we would call proleptically. He is speaking of something that has not occurred yet, but something that will occur in the near future. And what is he speaking of? His ascension into heaven. He is going to return back to the Father and be clothed with the glory that, the, that He was clothed with before the foundations of the world. He is going to be exalted. He is going to return to the love of His Father that He enjoyed before the foundation of the world. And Jesus here prays that all those who are in His church will one day go to that zip code. That's what he's praying for. That's his petition to God. He wants all of those who have been given to the Father to be with Him, and not only to be with Him, but to see what? It's not only being there with Him, but to see His what? To see His glory. And so the movement from the church is always from one degree of glory to another degree of glory until we reach the place, until we have come into glorification. And Jesus is praying here that all of you who are in Him that the Father has given to Him will be in the zip code of heaven with Jesus one day and that when you and I get there in heaven that we will be there to be with Jesus and that we will get to see His glory. I thought about Revelation chapter 1. You should go read that later on today. Revelation chapter 1 verses uh, 13 through 16 John has a vision of Jesus. That's the way that Revelation begins. And he sees Jesus in all His awesome glory. It's just a little, just a little appetizer in Scripture there of the glory that is awaiting us when we get to heaven. Well, what's the means by which that is accomplished? Look at verse 25. The way that they will get to glory. Verse 25, Jesus prays, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Well, how did they come to know that Jesus was sent by the Father? Verse 26, 
What did Jesus say? I made known to them your name. We've seen this before. A revelation of God's name is a reference back to Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is at the burning bush and God is sending Moses to Egypt and Moses tells the Lord, suppose I go to Egypt and they ask me, what is the name of the one who has sent you to us? What should I tell them your name is? And God reveals himself as who? I am who I am. You go tell them, Moses, that the I am has sent you to them. And so a revelation of God's name, making known God's name, is Jesus' way of revealing not just the character of God, not just the glory of God, but God's plan of redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is saying here is He said, I have made known your name to them. They are saved. And because they are saved, they are going to glory. Why? Look at verse 26. I'm going to continue doing that, Jesus says. Isn't that awesome? Not only did I make known your name to them, but I am going to continue making known your name to them. What would be the result of that? Look at verse 26. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. You know that unity and joy between the Father and the Son and that love that is in joy between the Father and the Son, those who are in Christ, those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved, those who are persevering in the faith, the love of God the Father is at work in their lives. But not only that, Jesus is present with them too. Look at the conclusion in verse 26. And I in them. Jesus thought about the beginning, thought about John 1.14 again. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. The verb there could also be translated as tabernacled. It's a reference back to the Old Testament when God met with Moses at the tent of meeting. You, you'll remember that in Exodus 33. Listen to Exodus 33, 9-11. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. So just imagine this. Here is Moses, the leader of the Israelites, and they are encamped in formation around the tent of meeting, and Moses would walk to the tent in the center of the camp. And it says that everyone would come to the door of their tent and they would watch Moses making his way to the tent of meeting. And when he would go there, the pillar of cloud would descend down upon the tent. And everyone could see that God's glory was in their midst. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own door. Isn't that awesome? God was in their midst. The glory of God was on display. And so they would see the cloud and they would worship. 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so what John says, and don't miss this, this is so awesome. When Jesus came, it was like the tent of meeting coming in a person and the glory of God being present with those who saw Jesus. Jesus came and tabernacled among His people and was present with His people. Throughout the Old Testament, the way that God delivered His people from Egypt, it wasn't just that God delivered them from Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, put them in the wilderness, patted them on the back and said, good luck, hope to see you in the land of Canaan. Don't mess up. No. God was present with them. Listen to the analogies of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32. He encircled him, him being Israel. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. Isn't that awesome? So what Deuteronomy, it's saying in Deuteronomy here is how is God present with His people? Like an eagle caring for its young in its nest, so the Lord was present caring for Israel in the wilderness. Listen to another Scripture. Psalm 28. He led out His people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. What's the analogy? It's the analogy of a shepherd with his sheep. And Jesus, and it's saying in Psalm 78 that Israel is brought out of Egypt like a shepherd brings out his sheep to pasture, caring for each one of them. Listen to Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. What's the analogy? It's the analogy of a gardener tending his garden, coming to Israel, his vine, picking it up, scooping it up, and planting it in another place, clearing all the ground for it, and watching over and caring for it until it bore fruit. It's no wonder then that in Psalm 90 that Moses would pray, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Whether it was in Egypt, whether it was in the wilderness, whether if it was in Babylon, or whether it was the promised land, the Lord had been their dwelling place through all generations. And when we come to the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying that I dwell with my church like God dwelt with Israel in the wilderness. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? How awesome that is? That God's presence is with us as His church? And you might be thinking to yourself, well, listen, I don't always feel the presence of God. 
We don't get to see the glory of God like the Israelites did in the wilderness. I don't always feel the love of God. I've told you this story before, but it bears repeating. I'll never forget. It's a brand new father traveling. I think it was for Thanksgiving, Christmas. Stopping at a Starbucks for coffee, and we just had little Cece, and she was just about the time when her legs were getting strong, and she would, we would hold her under the arms, and she would bounce. And we were at a Starbucks, and Gina Marie was passing little Cece off to me, and I grabbed for her blanket first, and not Cece, and Gina Marie thought I was grabbing for Cece, and there Cece went toppling over the end of that table. Head first. And I couldn't have planned it. There are, there's something called dad reflexes. I reached down, and as she was descending down to make contact with the concrete floor... I reached down and just caught her by the foot, caught her by the ankle, upside down. And I just held her just like this. It seemed like time stood still as I held my little, little child upside down in Starbucks. And little Cece went to just screaming. And I about had a heart attack. And Gina Marie about had a heart attack. Everyone was fine, except for my, my claw prints in her leg that was there for a little while. She was fine. We were fine. And she, Cece, was none the wiser. Never forget walking out of that Starbucks with a crying child and a father coming up to me. I think he said, hey, I've got eight kids in that van over there. You did a good job, Dad. And I tell you that, that just as that little toddler, just as that little child is not always aware of his or her parents' presence or love, so too you and I, little children, are not always aware of our Father's presence with us. He has promised to be with us through Christ in His Spirit. He has promised to walk with us. He has promised to dwell with us. He's promised to enable us to persevere. And He's praying for us. And just because there are times when you don't feel His presence or feel His love does not negate the fact That He is always present watching over you. And you and I are going to see His glory one day because He's been present with us. Because He's been praying for us. I wonder if I could pray for you this morning that you would have a reminder of that great truth. Let's pray together. Lord, if you are for us, who can be against us? 
If you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us in the church, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? None can bring a charge against us, your church. For you are the one who justifies. None can condemn because Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who indeed was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not tribulation. Not distress. Not persecution. Not famine. Not poverty. Not danger. Not even death. Nothing will be able to separate us from your love. The very love that you have given us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we pray and ask that you would fill our hearts fresh and anew this morning with this love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.